Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Um, and some women with dependent children now, they're looked on as, um, I'm not going to say parasites, but just like if they're not bringing home the calories, if they're not bringing home the bacon, they're disempowered relative to men. Welcome back to Open Late Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Spandiari. And this week I have with me Dr. Wednesday Martin. I am so stoked because truth be told, when I started this podcast almost two years ago, she was a dream guest for me. I'm a huge fan of her work and she is the author of a book called Untrue, which changed my life. This is a book about how everything you've been taught or told about female sexuality is frankly untrue. And I find her work fascinating and I cannot wait to share it with you today. We're going to be uncovering the impact of agriculture on women's roles and gender dynamics. We're going to talk about female anatomy and the girl boner and also just human nature and sexuality in general. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Wednesday Martin. Thank you so much for having me on, Jessica. I love your work. Thank you. Thank you. Um, That means a lot coming from you since you have been, I think in many ways, blazing this trail of normalizing women's sexuality, period, that we are sexual beings and that, you know, like in the title of your book, most of the things you've heard about our sexuality is untrue because it either hasn't Mm. been studied or blanket studies, you know, about humans are mostly about men. Yes. yeah, I think I want to just start with an overview of this. Sure. This might be a tall order, but since it's in your book, you know, how did we get to this place, starting from bonobos to a place where now we live in a society where, you know, we are we are in a container of, you know, apparently like modern sexuality, but it's yeah. still antiquated. So Yes. Yeah, antiquated. <laughs> How do we get for here? Sure. Oh, wow. That's a big question. How long do we have? No, I'm kidding. I'll try to keep it concise. But first of all, I want to say that you're so right. And what I've noticed about, about science is that nowhere is there more confirmation bias in science than in the sexual science about women and um females of other species. It has been just buried in uh, misperceptions and misrepresentations uh, for at least a couple centuries at least. And so that is what set me on a course to write on true. I knew there were these new findings in anthropology, in primatology, in the sex research about who women and females of other species really are sexually and that it completely upended all the things that we think about women. And so, for example, and females of other species, for example, we think that women have lower libidos uh, than men. And 
thanks to female sex researchers, uh, they have actually developed an instrument, we call it, and uh, to measure female libido. We know that if we measure female libido the right way, including uh, measuring responsive desire, male and female libido is very closely matched. There's not a lot of mismatch there. Uh, For example, we've been taught that women are naturally monogamous. And what we know from more recent evolutionary biology, primatology, anthropology, always look at that worldwide ethnographic data, don't just look at one culture, uh, and medical science and sex, sexology. uh, What we know is that in the aggregate, monogamy is a tighter shoe for women than it is for men. And we see that across species as well. Very rarely do we see female monogamy. So these two big ideas, that those are just two of the big ideas about who women and men are sexually. And there's so much new science refuting it. And I wanted to cross it over. So your question more specifically, though, and it's such a great question, is how did we get here? <laughs> Wow. The first thing to understand and that I get into and untrue is that one of the ways we got here will really surprise people. The plow. The dawn Uh, of the plow. (laughs) Believe it or not, my colleague and friend, Helen Fisher, who's also an anthropologist and one of the uh, scientific advisors to Match.com, gave a great talk in which she said, the plow is the worst thing that ever happened to women. Now, people might say, like, how can like a switch in agriculture be terrible for women? What, what on earth happened there? What we see if we look at the worldwide ethnographic data is that in contexts where women are, are gathering, in hunter-gatherer cultures, or in cultures where there's hoe agriculture or poke and stick agriculture, uh, we see that women have higher rates of political participation, uh, that they have higher rates of meaningful labor force participation, if you will. You know, if you're a female hunter-gatherer, you're likely gathering 60% or more of the band's calories, right? And you have a political voice about whether your band moves here or there or stays in the current camp. So um, when I use those terms, we can apply them to different contexts. But anywhere where there is plow agriculture that includes draft animals or pushing the plow, we see that women have less power and less sexual autonomy wherever there's not plow agriculture and has, and has not had plow agriculture, we see that women have less power, lower, uh, you know, sorry, wherever there has not been plow agriculture, we see that women uh, are more empowered financially, personally, politically, and sexually. So, and it's interesting that it holds um, some researchers Uh, at Harvard, among other places, did a big regression analysis study. And they determined that it's not just if you are from a country where there is currently plow agriculture, but if you have ancestors uh, who practiced plow agriculture, if generations back there was plow agriculture in your history and you move thousands of miles away, you are still likely to believe the following two retrograde beliefs. One is that men make better political leaders than women. 
And the second one is, you know, if only one, if there aren't enough jobs to go around, men should have the jobs. Now, in cultures where there's been plow, plow agriculture, those beliefs hold. People have those beliefs. In cultures where there has been no plow agriculture and in nobody's family was there plow agriculture, those beliefs do not hold. Those people will not, they will say, what are you talking about that, you know, men make better politicians than women? They'll say, what are you talking about that if only, if there aren't enough jobs to go around, men should get the jobs first? Why? So the means of production shifting from either, um, uh, hoe agriculture or poke and st stick and poke agriculture or hunting and gathering. That transition to plow culture changed our beliefs radically about who women and men are, including that men became more sexually entitled and privileged. Now let's talk about why. Think about handling draft animals or pushing a plow with your body. Before we did that, we were mostly hunters and gatherers or hoe agriculture practitioners. Now, hunting and gathering and hoe agriculture are both means of production where it's easier for it's easy for women. Women can do it, uh, no problem. Women can do it as well as men can, and they can do it with their children with them. Now, when we switched twelve thousand years ago to plow agriculture or maybe 10,000 years ago, what happened was suddenly men had an advantage. One of the clearer physical advantages that women have, that men have over women, excuse me, is brawn and upper body strength. Okay, so we moved into this ecology where women were hunting and gathering or practicing uh, hoe agriculture. They were big contributors to the economy, if you will. They were feeding people. Good luck lifting your hand against a woman who is literally bringing home the bacon or the shaw roots and tubers, right? So suddenly men had this advantage that they had never had before because they had more upper body strength. This ushered in a series of changes that left women politically and sexually subjugated. Because suddenly, when we had plow agriculture, men were supposed to be outside. Men belonged outside, not just in the fields, but outside in the world. Men were making the impact. Men were stronger. Um, and men were the primary producers. And women and their dependent children were suddenly inside the home, not really contributing in the same way, right? Not contributing calories in the same way, not bringing home the bacon in the same way, if you will, that they had been for centuries, for eons. And suddenly they were supposed to be inside. Their natural place was the hearth in the home. Nothing natural about it. It was a shift in agricultural production that made it happen. But, oh, now we suddenly think that women are naturally, you know, guardians of the hearth. And women become property. All of a sudden, whereas in hunter-gatherer societies, things are kept very egalitarian and people have strategies for keeping everybody equal. And these strategies include insults. If somebody seems to be too big for their britches, they'll get teased and cut down until they realize they're just like everybody else. 
Um, if somebody um, has too many possessions, you can make object demands in a hunter-gatherer society and nobody can turn you down. So I would say to you, Jessica, give me your necklace. And you would give me your necklace. And then you would say, Wednesday, give me your rings. And I would give you my rings. So these are just two ways that hunter-gatherer cultures and we for eons kept it egalitarian. Now, there's no property. I can say, give me your best arrow. I want it. And you're like, well, here you go. Okay, suddenly when we shift to plow agriculture, we now are uh, producing grain. Men are out there doing it. Women are helping with it and process it in the household, but really like, wow, not a lot of power anymore. Um, and some women with dependent children, now they're looked on as, um, I'm not going to say parasites, but just like if they're not bringing home the calories, if they're not bringing home the bacon, they're disempowered relative to men who are doing it. Now, what also happens is now we have reserves. Hunting and gathering is an economy where you get what you get and you distribute it equally and you eat it. Now, when we had crops, all of a sudden we had crop reserves, we had grain reserves, and we had to store them. And suddenly we have this idea like, wait, this is my grain reserve and this is my property. So we developed these ideas of um, different ideas of abundance and wealth and different concepts of property, which include the perimeter of uh, guarding the perimeter of your farmland, right? All of a sudden we're really invested in this idea of my space versus your space. And women become the property of men with the rise of the concept of property. So this is the version that um, of how our society has shifted that I subscribe to and a lot of other, a lot of anthropologists and social scientists do as well. Um, and so would you believe that the plow is what changed things between men and women? Now, if your woman is your property and you have property to pass down, progenitor is now a thing, right? Passing down your property. If you're a guy, you don't want to misdirect your paternal investment. So all of a sudden, this woman is your property, these kids are your property, and you're going to pass property down to them. Holy hell, you better not be raising somebody else's kid and giving that kid uh, your stuff. So that's a, a, an overview of how the plow changed everything for women. I want to say yeah. one other thing about it, because all of a sudden now women are sedentary in ways they weren't when they were hunting and gathering. When they're hunting and gathering, they're out on their own. They're bringing home the money. They're meeting with their lovers out there. They're doing what they want. Plow agriculture. Women are inside the household. They're isolated, usually even from their kin, which is a natural power base. Their fertility rates go up. Their interbirth interval goes down. Now they're burdened with even more dependent children than ever before right? And um, they're being watched because they're there at home and they can be surveyed in ways that they couldn't be when we were hunting and gathering. So that's my brief overview of how women came to be sexually and politically and socially subjugated to men. Yeah. Wow. And I get into Thank it you in for more detail. <laughs> that was such a long answer. Sorry, Jessica. No, not at all. It was actually such a, a I think, concise 
answer to because your book is your book is dense. Your this, your book is I feel like not it's not a light read, and I always say that to people when I talk about the Bible on the show. But it's <laughs> you know not in a bad way. Dense, really meaty because there's so much research in it, and you've also done so many interviews. And I think you you did a great job of kind of uh, uh, boiling it down to these really key points. And I think one of the things that makes me think about is how, yes, yeah, so much changed, like seemingly mm. overnight, maybe in a mm. few generations now, everyone who is anyone is using this system mm-hmm. to farm, but, but women didn't change on the inside, right? The software desires- is still in there, honey. The software yeah, is because- still in there. It maybe has been, yeah, 10, 10, 12,000 years, but we're talking about millennia and millennia and, you know, yeah, I always years on yeah. the planet. I always like to say that in the long arc of human evolution, inequality is a recent aberration. Hmm. And, and women being subjugated. Thought. Yeah, women being subjugated is a recent aberration in the long arc of human equality. So that always gives me hope. Um, but, uh, and thank you for, uh, you're, you're right that the book is dense and I did try to um, just isolate the key pivotal moments that tell the story of how women went from running their own shows sexually uh, to being coerced and contained. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, dense in the best way. I think if you if you listen to the show, you've heard me talk about it a bunch. But if you haven't, like this book is a must for I think understanding the true nature. Here it of is. People born <laughs> with with you know these parts. So yeah, thank you for showing born, it. born um, born with these bits. You know, if I yeah. may, one of the other things that contributed to women being subjugated and coerced and controlled was scientific discourse. And we had Darwin saying he, you know, he was a Victorian science and scientist in many ways. He's my hero. I mean, he, he saved us all by coming up with the theory of evolution. He made such huge critical contributions to our understanding of who we are um, as social animals. But he also did a fair amount of damage through his confirmation bias, saying that what he observed in the field was that females of most species were coy and reticent when it came to sex, and males were pugnacious and courageous and so on. Now, fast forward, when women enter fields like primatology, field biology, um, you know, medicine, uh, uh, sexual science, uh, what they see, those who are doing fieldwork and looking at other species, is they're going like, wait, hold on a second. Actually, these females are initiating copulation. These females are being very sexually assertive. These females are showing a lot of sexual agency. Um, all the birds that we thought were monogamous, the females are like flying out of the nest and out of the region, for example, to mate uh, with strange males. So to make a long story short, one of the stories that has most um, fucked up our ideas of who men and women are sexually and socially 
is the story of bonobos, um, which I get into in Untrue. And basically this wonderful female primatologist named Amy Parrish at the age of 26 started observing bonobos and writing about their sexual and social behavior. Um, bonobos are like chimps, except they're like thinner and have like weirder hairdos, basically. Um, but a lot of people thought they were chimps for many years because we didn't have opportunities to study them. They only live in Democratic Republic of Congo. So scientists didn't get an opportunity to study them um, until pretty recently. So Amy Parrish was one of the first people to cross over the truth about bonobo behaviors, along with chimps. Uh, they're our closest uh, non-human primate relatives. And it's my belief that if we look at our, their sexual and social behaviors, we can understand ourselves better. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com So we had inherited this story about who humans were based on chimp behavior. Um, among chimps, the, they're a male-dominant species. Uh, the life of a female chimp is um, pretty abject. There are high rates of infanticide. Uh, there are high rates of coercion. It's a very hierarchical world. And for a long time, we thought, wow, well, you know, that's who we are. That's just like us. Along comes Amy Parrish at age 26, and she blows the whole story of the arc of human evolution and who we are sexually and socially as men and women wide open because she says to everybody, you know, I've been observing these bonobos, also our very close relatives. And while I was observing them, what I realized is that the females eat first and the females get groomed the most. And I looked at some veterinary records. By the way, bonobos behave under human care very much the same as they do in their natural habitat. So said, I looked at the veterinary records and literally 24 out of 25 instances of uh, near lethal aggression were committed by females against males. You guys, we are talking about a female dominant species. Uh, and a lot of people think based on studies of our musculature um, that we are more closely related to bonobos than we are to chimps. So as Dr. Amy Parrish always says, this is a story about human evolution and gender roles that we have not been comfortable with and have not been exposed to enough. We are 
if we want to make these analogies, you know, we're equally related to chimps and bonobos, I believe more closely related to bonobos. So this is an important story about the arc of human evolution that we evolved from a female dominant species where the females are remarkably promiscuous uh, and they would rather uh, have sex with another female than with a male. And that's how they build uh, their social power because males are bigger, just like male chimps are bigger than female chimps. But uh, female bonobos struck on this social strategy to have sex with each other. It feels better to them because like us, they have these richly innervated, forward-facing, exposed clitorides. And if they are simultaneously sort of propositioned by a male and a female, they'll almost always go with the female because they do this genital-to-genital rubbing that feels really good to them. They're like shrieking with pleasure while they're doing it. They're probably getting a lot more pleasure than they get from intercourse, although they like that too. And this turns out to build incredible social bonds between female bonobos, and it makes it easier for them to dominate males, uh, which they do. And there have even been uh, observations, a few, of female bonobos sexually coercing males. Um, males have erections a lot of the time because from anxiety because they're subjugated. And so females often uh, mate with them. Um, and Amy Parrish told me in a conversation that she had seen the males seem distressed at how the females were pursuing them and then forcibly copulating with them. So this is a story of uh, evo- you know, of evolution and a story of our origins that we are very ignorant of. And when we hear it, it's very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Of course, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I, love I know. That. I love it too. I'm like, this is the best to really hear this side of, of our, of our lives and like where we come from. And, you know, you could mm. believe what you want, but just to know that there is a difference and it's not mm-hmm. just like this one size fits all um, mm-hmm. is really empowering. Yeah. yeah. And so, I agree. you know, to, to think about like what we can do with that information mm, is, yeah. is where my mind likes to go. But that's like jumping ahead. I do want to kind of talk about the anatomy a bit and how we as – because you okay. brought up like the way that- yes. Funny okay. you should <laughs> say that. I have some – I have some pedagogical tools here. (laughs) I knew you would be prepared. (laughs) I'm always prepared. I'm a nerd. But um, yeah, so what was your more specific question? Um, Well, it was was so fun how you brought up like how the bonobos would copulate. But also (laughs) one of the things I, I find so fascinating about, you know, just researching female sexuality in general, but also in your book is like how our our organs and the way everything is placed and how we function and how we experience pleasure really does point to the fact that we come from a long line of society where we would have multiple sex partners. And mm-hmm. then that still is very much the case of what would be most pleasing for a lot of people physically, maybe mm-hmm. emotionally and mentally. Some people aren't caught up or, or caught back up uh-huh. to that, but just by way of our bodies, like this is how we're designed. Yes, let's talk about that. So the first thing I always like to tell everybody is that the one thing to know about human sexuality is that we evolved as super flexible sexual and social strategists. 
And that means we can thrive in a number of situations. Uh, women, for example, can thrive in polyandrous relationships, which is when a woman has more than one husband. Women uh, can do well with polygyny, um, where there's more than one wife. Uh, women can thrive when they're monogamous, when they're non-monogamous. Um, we, some of us like people of the same sex. Some of us like non-binary people. Uh, some of us are identify as gay. Um, some of us have a foot fetish or a fetish for getting peed on. It just all shows why we survived, why Homo sapiens sapiens thrived, while others, uh, you know, in other lineages, um, they didn't, right? Like there's a reason that we're here today and Australopithecus afarensis is not. And the reason is that we had very flexible sexual and social strategies so we could do well in all these ecologies. Okay, sorry to, to put it in such a nerd context, but... No, this is great. This gal is the... Um, this is a three-dimensional model of the human female clitoris, for people who don't know. This little tiny nubbin, if I cover everything else up and all you see is this little tiny thing, that's called the glans clitoris. It has a foreskin. You can. That's the only thing you can see with your naked eye. It's the only thing that somebody really works with their tongue or their, you know, digits usually, um, or their vibrator. But we're learning a lot more. And what we know now is that there is a very extensive anatomy to the human female clitoris. This is the only part showing the whole wild ride is on the inside, you guys. So this is just the ticket to the roller coaster ride, I like to say. Everything's happening here. Uh, we have these uh, beautiful um, vestibular bulbs that are under your labia. This is all erectile tissue. We have these crura that wing their way back uh, toward your anus and along with something else I'll talk about, the, the, the perineal sponge, um, are, you know, contribute to the fact that some women really enjoy anal sex. And then we have, if you don't mind, I'll just use my little visual aid here. Uh, this isn't all. This is not all. All this erectile tissue, as much erectile tissue as a penis, this isn't, this isn't at all. There's something else here, uh, which you may be able to see. I'll just pull myself back a little. Sorry for the noise and distraction. But right here is a bunch of spongy erectile tissue around a woman's urethra. And back here, I mentioned the perineal sponge. This is by a woman's anus. So there's all this incredible uh, erectile tissue inside a woman's body. Um, there's a great, wonderful book called Girl Boner, uh, which gets into the fact, which taught me that women wake up, we wake up with morning wood, and we get erections when we're turned on. Clit havers, excuse me. Uh, we get erections when we're turned on. We wake up with morning wood. I always tell clit havers, try to tune into that. Try to feel yourself getting a girl boner or a clit boner. See what happens. Now, when we're talking about this anatomy, this is part of scientific discourse that's been hidden. It was literally occluded from medical journals. Um, it was occluded from uh, Gray's Anatomy. Um, you know, we have knowledge of this in the medieval period when. Uh, 
midwives knew about it and talked about how, oh, it, it doth rise and fall and make women randy, basically. So we had knowledge of it. And then we had what I call the great forgetting. And now we're in a period that I call the great correction, uh, when there are a lot of clit havers uh, and people who identify as women in science. And so we have rediscovered so many things like who bonobos are and what they can tell us about ourselves and what has happened. Like that the clitoris is not just this little thing. It's extensive. Now, the important thing about the clitoris, and perhaps your listeners have heard it many times, but I would still like to reiterate, the sole function of the clitoris is sexual pleasure. There's a reason that only women have an organ devoted entirely to sexual pleasure and that men's sexual organ is at once about pleasure and function, right? The penis is for peeing and for sex. This girl is just for pleasure. And it's one of the reasons that I assert that women evolved for sexual pleasure. And why? Why do we have this clitoris? It feels good. That's the most important thing to know. Nobody's walking around going, uh, I want to have sex because I want to have a robust baby, right? Females of all species want to do this because it feels good. Um, so what are the benefits to having a clitoris? What did the clitoris do for us? Because we have a clitoris, uh, we have orgasms and we have the potential for multiple orgasms, unlike uh, penis havers. I know people will say, well, sometimes a guy can come like three or four times in an hour. And it's like, well, that's super exceptional. Whereas, you know, women have no refractory period. We can go again and again and again, and we can orgasm again and again and again, and we can have multiple orgasms. Why? Because sex for the female who is not living in a state of coercion and constraint is so potentially pleasurable that she will seek it out with more than one partner. And what are the benefits to that in the end? Well, if you only have one partner, sorry to say this, that penis haver might be shooting blanks, right? That penis haver might be just one guy. He might be a little too genetically similar to you uh, for you to have this great thing called heterozygosity, uh, which means that if you're a person, you know, who desires a pregnancy, uh, you are going to have, uh, you'll be taking a risk if you're only with one guy, whereas if you're with more than one, he, you're going to find the guy who's genetically dissimilar to you, or you're going to, which makes for a healthy, robust pregnancy um, and a, a child, uh, an offspring who survives to reproduce themselves, which is the name of the game in evolutionary biology. I know it all sounds very heteronormative, uh, and it is, and it's missing big pieces of the story of who we are because we are not a heteronormative species, honey. But the name of the game in evolutionary biology is reproduction and uh, um, our reproductive success is defined as how many offspring do we have who survive to reproduce themselves? Well, this girl is going to get you, uh, say your guy, you have one guy and he has low sperm motility. Okay, but be with four guys uh, and you'll up your chances that they have great sperm motility. You'll up your chances that they're genetically dissimilar enough 
from you that you'll have a robust pregnancy and a robust offspring who survives to reproduce themselves. You will also be like calling in the social support, right? Have sex uh, with multiple partners and they'll probably think there's a good chance that's mine. There's a chance that it's mine. Let me contribute. Um, let me contribute to this uh, female's well-being. Let me provision her during pregnancy in case it's mine. Uh, let me be there as a helper at the nest, if you will, in case it's mine. Uh, and finally, there is infanticide, male infanticide in many species. And what my mentor and hero, the um, evolutionary biologist Sarah Hurdy discovered is that if a male of any species, non-human primate species, mates with the female one time, he will not kill that infant. So promiscuity, as one uh, scientist has said, for, for females, promiscuity is very pragmatic. You accrue a lot of benefits. What's going to make you want to be promiscuous? And I use that uh, term in the scientific sense of the word, uh, you know, uh, what's going to make you want to have multiple partners? This beautiful organ. <laughs> and for people who are for people who are only listening, she is dancing with this cute little little by no means actually pink yeah. clitoris. Yes. Uh, I encourage everybody to have one in their house. It starts great conversations. If you have kids, they can learn that female sexual anatomy is absolutely awesome. And you can tell your friends. And yeah. I want to say that if anybody's like, wait, I didn't know about the internal clitoris. Um, I want to, um, I want to steer you to, I believe it's August McLaughlin's book, Girl Boner. But I also mm. want you to not feel bad about knowing and not be ashamed because before COVID, I gave a talk to roughly 130 women doctors um, in North Carolina, and many of them were OBGYNs. And when I held this model up and asked if anybody knew what it was, only one person raised her hand, okay? And she was the, the AV person. <laughs> she was the person, like, she was a young person. Um, and then I asked the doctors to guess what this was. And one of them thought it was a chicken foot. And one of them <laughs> thought it was a mouth guard. And one thought it was a sex toy. And I said, well, you know, you're right. It's basically the best sex toy that exists. Um, but, you know, don't let anybody shame you if you didn't know about that. And just educate yourself. You'll have so much fun learning about how awesome the human female clitoris is. But yeah, she... It helps explain uh, the story of who we are sexually. And yeah, we share that with bonobos, just the intense pleasure, um, you know, that we get from clitoral stimulation. It's what keeps us sexual. It's what keeps us seeking out multiple partners, sometimes even in contexts where it's extremely dangerous for us. You will see yeah. a human, a human, uh, sorry, excuse me, a female chimp who like I said, has a very abject, dangerous life in many instances, right? They're very low on the totem pole compared to males. Uh, they get beaten by, by males and sometimes by other females, uh, low-ranking female chimps. They will risk death 
at the hands of a dominant male to leave their troop and go wandering and go out there and find a male who is uh, a stranger and copulate with him. And they will seek that out and initiate the copulation and they will take these tremendous risks. And that's the power of the clitoris and of female sexuality. Wow. There's, this is like, I, re- I remember the first time I, well, I, so I started reading the book, but then I listened to it because I love your voice. And I was like, I need to like oh, listen you. to this book while I'm doing stuff and running. And when you really dove into all of this biology, it's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really beautiful for you to share and point to that there's no shame in not knowing because no one has ever taught us. And like you said, this was hidden. It was hidden from the research. We were actively prevented from learning these things until Title IX and clit havers moved into science and brought new forms of curiosity and compassion and insight. They're like, so what's the life of a female chimp like? Uh, What's the life of a female bonobo like? What is it like to be a female spider monkey? By the way, just an aside, female spider monkeys have a pendulous, hypertrophied clitoris that hangs down uh, between their legs and looks like a penis. Whereas the males, their genitals are retracted into their bodies almost all the time. And so a total rookie move for a primatologist is to make to mistake a female uh, spider monkey for a male spider monkey and vice versa. And so um, I wrote a book, I wrote an Amazon original short story called The Button, which is a natural history of the clitoris and gets into uh, the spider monkey clit and, you know, why it is the way it is. Um, and so I urge people who are interested to check that out um, if they want to oh see my, my, my writings about the clitoris. Yeah, it's called The Button yeah. and it's an Amazon. We'll link it. Thanks. We'll link it in the show notes. And of course, like Untrue is definitely, yeah, not your only book. I mean, there are so many <laughs> incredible things that you've worked on over the years. And I also love Primates of Park Avenue and just like. Oh, great. Oh, I, there are so many, there's so many places that we can go. I'm so interested. Title nine. Don't even know what that is. I'm going to link it in the show notes. Well, there you have it. There's so much to sit with here. I hope that this episode was thought provoking and maybe even a little bit triggering for you. It's so important to examine our beliefs and what we think we know. So of course, you know, with these interviews, there is always a part two to the conversation. Stay tuned and I'll see you next week. 